Our scripture text this morning begins in Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20 and verse 41. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to take one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you, and you can find Luke chapter 20, verse 41 on page 1119, 1119. We're going to start with verse 41 of chapter 20, and we'll read through Uh, the end of that chapter, into chapter 21 and verse 4. We're returning to our uh, our sermon series at the end of, where we're looking at the end of Jesus' life through Luke's uh, account, through Luke's gospel. And at the end of Luke chapter 20, where we find ourselves, Jesus is continuing to teach in the temple courts after he has faced several challenges, uh, uh, religious leaders, uh, leaders of the, of, the, of the Jewish people kind of confronting him, challenging him, asking him questions about his authority, about his uh, theological views on different things. And this morning we're going to read three short segments um, of Luke's account that in most English translations fall under three separate headings. And it's tempting to, to read each of them in isolation because of those separate headings, but they're actually logically connected as I hope that we'll We'll see. So let me ask you to stand as I read this passage. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So this is Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 41. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Chapter 21, verse verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the, the story has been making the, the rounds in the media over the last couple of weeks, and so maybe you've seen it, but about 10 years ago, a guy from a small town in uh, Alabama, population of about 1,000, his name was Hody Childress, walked into the local pharmacy, and he was no stranger to this pharmacy. He had struggled himself for years with chronic lung disease, and so he was often there for his own reasons, but that day when he walked in, it wasn't just about his own reasons that he was there. He went up and started talking to Brooke Walker, who was one of the owners of the pharmacy, and she says that Hody came up to her and, and, and asked her if anyone ever had trouble paying for their medication, paying for their prescriptions. And she said that he then, after, after he asked that question, I said, well, yes, that's, there's times when that happened. He handed me a, a bill, and he said, the next time that happens, I want you to use this. I don't want them to know who I am, and I don't want to know who they are. I just want you to tell them that this is a blessing from the Lord. The $100 bill. And Walker says she was, she was blown away. 
and she, but she assumed it was just, you know, it was just a one-time gift, very, very generous, very kind offer, right? But then he showed up the next month with a $100 bill folded up, and he, he found Walker, and he slipped it to her, and he says, you know what to do with that. And he did that every single month for about 10 years until his death last month on New Year's Day. And until late last year, no one, except for the pharmacist, not even his family, knew the identity of this generous giver who always provided a little bit extra for someone who wasn't able to pay for their medication. He didn't want the recognition. And in the scheme of things, if you do the math, the amount of, you know, accumulated about $12,000 or so over a, a decade, that wouldn't even, in a lot of, you know, big philanthropy circles today, $12,000, it wouldn't even get you a plaque. But he wasn't doing it for the plaque. And he wasn't doing it for the media recognition that's resulted over the last month or so. Tell them, he said, it's a blessing from the Lord. Who gets the honor when we use the things that God gives us? Big things or small things. Right? We all live to honor something, to give someone the credit. Right? Something or someone that we believe is most important. Who gets the credit? Who do you want to get the spotlight? Luke brings to a close this extended account of Jesus' exchange and interactions with the Jewish leaders. He brings it to a close with these three mini-sections that contrast the hearts of those seeking to honor God. If you look at the three sections that we read, this is how it would kind of break down. In chapter 20, verses 41 to 44, we see and we learn about the one who truly deserves honor. And then, continuing in chapter 20, the last couple of verses, 45 to 47, we learn about the heart of the one who, who takes honor, takes honor for himself. And then finally, in this famous story of the widow's offering, we see the one who gives honor, gives it to where it rightly belongs. All right, so let's look at those three sections, right? The one who deserves honor, the one who takes honor, and the one who rightly gives honor. First, chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. Look back at verse 41, right? The one who deserves honor, that's the first setting. Chapter 20, verse 41, starts by saying, But he said to them, and this is why you can't just read something without understanding the context, or else you'd be like, wait, who's he, who's them, and why the but? Right? But if you go back to the previous verses, or if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might remember, this is what was happening. What you have is Jesus, he's the he, talking to the scribes, they're the them, and he's saying something that's going to expose a misunderstanding on their part, some type of of misunderstanding, even hypocrisy. That's the reason for the but. And what he's sensing in the scribes on the whole, right? Some of them may have thought that Jesus was, a, was really a good teacher. They might have been impressed. With him. But in the main, he knew that they were out to, to get him. In fact, if you go back in chapter 20 and you read, they actually were. It says that they were out to get him. They were a part of him. And Jesus asked the scribe, verse 41, how can they say the Christ is David's son? The Christ, the Messiah, right? The Savior of Israel, the one who was prophesied in the Old, in the Old Testament. And the scribes, they would have gotten the reference. They would have understood the, the, the question that Jesus was asking because they knew, the, they knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards, right? But for the record, even though the scribes would have known the reference that he was making, for the record and for our benefit, Jesus cites the reference. He says, David says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. One of the most important messianic texts in the Old Testament and, and one of the most commonly cited in the New. 
And then, and just for emphasis, after he cites the source, he reiterates the question to the scribes. David thus calls this Lord, my Lord, and so how is he also his son? And he doesn't expect an answer from the scribes. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that's, that's asked in order to, to make a point. But at first glance, you might honestly be asking as you read this or as you listen to it, okay, Jesus is trying to make a point. What's, what's the point? And don't feel badly if that's you because, because I, I, Jesus seems to know the point that he's making. We assume, or Jesus seems to think, that the scribes would understand the point that he's making, that they would have the complete benefit of the reference he makes, or else, why else would Jesus ask the question? But what's so important about David writing, the Lord said to my Lord? Right, that's really, that's really where the point is. The Lord said to my Lord. What's, what, what's that mean? Now, it's important to understand, and you can see this actually if you go back to Psalm 110, you can see this. The first Lord where it says the Lord, is referring to Jehovah, to Yahweh. That's the, that's the, the, the Hebrew word that's translated when it says the Lord, right? The covenant-keeping sovereign God of, of Israel. And the second Lord, where it says my Lord, right? The Lord says to my Lord. That second Lord, my Lord, is a different Hebrew word, Adonai. Still a word for God, but, but this Lord, who David calls my Lord, was understood in the context of this psalm and frequently in, 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 uh, in prophecy, is understood to be referring also to the Messiah. And the scribes would have known that because they viewed Psalm 110 and this phrase specifically as messianic, as looking forward to, to the coming Savior of, of Israel. And from lots of, of texts and other places, they would have understood that the Messiah was also to come from the physical lineage of of David, that the Messiah would be a physical son of David. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's demonstrating to the scribes, using a text that would have been familiar to them and they would have viewed as authoritative, he's making the point that the Messiah would not have merely been a physical son of David, but would also have been David's divine Lord. And in doing that, Jesus is raising the identity, he's raising the, the mission of the Messiah above the expectations of, the, uh, of the, common, uh, the common views of the time, which would have viewed the Messiah, according to the common expectation, as just some sort of military or political leader that would throw off the, the Roman rule. And Jesus is saying, no, he's not, he's not simply David's son, he is also David's Lord. And implicitly, Jesus has been, what Jesus is doing is he's furthering the claim that he's been making all along and repeatedly, a claim that he is, in fact, this Messiah, David's son and David's Lord. And he's going back then to the, to the comment that the scribes last made about him in, in, in chapter 20 in those preceding verses that we reference. He's basically saying then, look, you pretend to honor me with all this flattery, calling me a good teacher. Good teacher, you have spoken well. Teacher, you've spoken greatly. You're so wise. And he said, look, I'm, he said, I'm, I'm just not another rabbi. I'm the Messiah of whom David spoke. The Lord not only of, of David, but of you. And it is to me that your honor ought to go. I am the one who is not only David's Lord, but your Lord as well. That's quite a claim. But Jesus is making it. And if you were to just, just stop right there and believe that to be true, what does it mean that, that Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of, our, of all of our lives, the one to whom our honor, all of the honor should, should go? If we were to stop, we'd say, well, we, we need to apply that. We need to think about that a little bit more. But here's the great thing. We don't, we don't need to do that because Jesus does that. 
Or we don't need to go off track. We can just keep reading. Because in the next two sections, that's exactly what Jesus does. Provides two contrasting examples of what it means and doesn't mean to honor Jesus as, as, the, as the true Lord, as the one at the center of our lives. Now, first, look at what it doesn't mean. This is heading number two in the bulletin outline. Jesus is heading number one, right? He's the one deserving of honor, right? He is our Lord, right? Now, heading number two, the one who takes honor for himself. Now, here Jesus turns back to his disciples, but it says in verse 45, he's still talking in the hearing of all the people, right? So, presumably, that includes the scribes. And he says to his disciples, while the scribes are probably still right there, beware of the scribes. And this is what connects the section uh, here to what Jesus was just doing, because obviously Jesus is making the scribes a negative example of what it means to not honor him as Lord, to not honor the right thing. Because who does Jesus say is the focus of the scribes' honor? Right? Who do the scribes seek to honor above all else? Why the scribes, of course. Right, look at how they, they do it. Jesus just gives us a list of examples. They like to walk around in long robes. Right? Long flowing robes that showed them to be men of learning, men of leisure. You didn't work in robes like this. You couldn't. It would get in your way. Right? But they weren't the working type. Right? They loved the greetings in the, in the marketplace. They walk around. Everybody said hi to them. Everybody greeted them. They loved the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at the, at the feasts. Any place they want, they always got the right table. It's like that scene that you kind of see frequently in movies where the common guy walks into the restaurant and says, you know, can I have a seat? And the maitre d' looks at the list and says, I'm sorry, we're full. We have nothing available. And then as the guy is still standing there, someone really important, some celebrity or, or, or a political leader or something, walks in right next to the guy and says, uh, do you have any seats available? Yes, right this way, sir. Right? That, that's what these guys enjoyed, that kind of favor. And at the end of the list, it says they also like to make long prayers for a pretense. What's that mean? That means they liked the way they sounded. They liked using big theological words, and they thought the length of one's prayer and the, and the theological pre- precision of the way one prayed, that it somehow marked you off as, as being extra special and extra great. They liked the recognition. They liked people coming up to them afterward and saying, what a beautiful prayer that was. Now, finally, there's this comment about devouring widows' houses. What's that mean? Well, this is where it, get, this is where it gets really low. Because most scholars think that what Jesus is referring to here was that these trusted religious leaders, experts in the law, very competent men for their their teaching and their ministry, but oftentimes what they would do is they would offer their services to to widows to help manage the affairs of their their household. While they were living in cases, right? let, let me help take care of you. Let me manage your affairs. Or after they die, to take care of, wrap up their their estate. And as they did that, they would compensate themselves, you know, for their expenses and their efforts out of the, out of the estate. And Jesus is calling it robbery, right? Robbery of some of the weakest members of ancient society, committed by people who should have been the most trusted. Now, why the warning, right? Why? Well, well they're attempting to take the honor for themselves. That's why. Right? They, 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 they want this honor, and even if there should, if because of their position, been some appropriate level of honor given them, recognition of, of the role that they played, and that's not inappropriate to honor those who are in positions of leadership, positions of responsibility. We're called to honor our leaders, but even if it's appropriate at some level, that honor should be given, not taken. And they wanted to take the honor for themselves. Right? In other words, what the scribes were, were honor thieves. Right? Because they want the honor 
without the sacrifice that goes along with getting it. Have you ever noticed that the people most worth honoring are the ones who sacrificed something to achieve the honor that they're that they're given? And, And have you ever noticed how dishonoring it actually is to steal the honor that really belongs to to someone else, right? If if you're in high school and uh, you have someone walking around with a, with a varsity jacket with a letter on it, and they never did anything for it. They never played a sport. They never excelled in the, in the band. They never did anything that actually earned it, right? They're just wearing it for the honor. They never sacrificed. Or how about this, right? After the, it was interesting. After the successful raid in 2011 of the, of, uh, the, the, the compound where Osama bin Laden was, the, the Navy SEAL raid on that compound, after that happened, there was a spike in those who claimed to be Navy SEALs, right? Yeah, I was a SEAL. It was, it, was, it was very common. In fact, actually, there's an organization called Stolen Valor, and there's a number of organizations like this, but one organization called Stolen Valor, Stolen Glory, right, that actually exists to expose people like this. And even before the Obama raid in 2011, they had, in, just in their work alone, exposed about 35,000 men who had claimed to be either active or retired Navy SEALs, which was interesting because at the time there were probably only about 7,000 SEALs who had either served or were currently serving. Ironically, Dan Hendrickson, who was a former SEAL commander himself, says it's actually pretty easy oftentimes to weed out the impersonators because the impersonators are the ones who are constantly talking about themselves being a SEAL. More often than not, Hendrickson said, the SEALs don't talk about their service unless they're around other, other SEALs. In other words, the more that someone talks about how deserving of honor they are, the less likely they are to actually probably deserve the honor they're claiming. Now, let's make it personal. It's easy to kind of say, wow, that's terrible, those SEAL impersonators. Right? But make it a little bit more personal. Are you an honor thief? Go back to... Um, Go back to Hody Childress, the man from Alabama who gave this $100 bill every month for 10 years to the local pharmacy so that others could, uh, could have their medications paid for. Didn't tell anyone except for the owner of the pharmacy for 10 years. He only broke down and told his daughter, Tanya, late last year when he had reached the physical condition himself where he wasn't able to leave the house. And Tanya was running errands for him. And so, you know, he, he, said, he said, I want you to take this to the pharmacy, and this is what I want you to do with it. That's the only way that she found out. Right? That was just a couple weeks before he died. Now, here's what's so convicting to me. I am absolutely convinced that I would have never been able to make it that long. I could have never made it 10 years with telling no one. Right? I mean, I'm sure there would have been some conversation with someone along the way, particularly my family, right, but probably other people as well, where I would have just, you know, let it slip, right? And there might be good reasons for someone in a situation like that telling someone else that you're doing something like this, but here's where I have to be really honest. Even if I didn't have a good reason, I would have made up a good reason. I would have, because even with good motivations to help people, there would have been this part of me that just couldn't hold it in, right, wanting other people to know what I'm doing, And even while I'm, you know, brushing it off externally, yes, it's really no big deal. Yes, it's just a small trifle. Oh, it's just just a little bit that I can do to help those who are less fortunate. What I'm really wanting at the base of it is for everyone to think how great I am. Right? That would have been me. All right, let's face it. We're all honor thieves to one degree or another. So beware of the scribes, for sure, but also beware of your own heart. Now, if you think that's convicting, move on to chapter 21 and the third heading 
We've seen the one who deserves honor, that's God, specifically the person of Jesus the Messiah. We've seen the one who takes honor, that's the scribe stealing glory from God, pretending that everything that God had given to him is actually some reason for him to be honored. Now heading number three, the one who gives honor. And here we have the story of the widow's offering. And most of the time when you hear this preached, it's a sermon all to itself, and that's probably because it begins a chapter, right? New chapter starts, and you've got this new chapter heading, but you assume that you're kind of shifting to something different, but you're really not. It's the same scene. It says Jesus looked up, right? Tells us that it's connected to the incident that happened before. He was just talking to his disciples, and he looked up. And as he looked up, he's going to say something about this woman that's in contrast to what he just observed about the scribes. What does it say that Jesus saw when he looked up? Well, here's the scene. In the temple courts, what you had were 13 different boxes, collection boxes, that had an opening at the top that were kind of like a trumpet, so a wide opening and then a, a narrow kind of a funnel that kind of went down into the, into the collection box. It was, they were called the trumpets, and each one of these chests had a different purpose. An offering here would go to that purpose and an offering for that box, their gifts. And obviously, they had big offering bags. Right? Maybe they needed a servant to kind of bring it in on a cart right? And he'd dump it in, and of course, it would make a loud clanging noise, and, and everyone would know how generous they were. And then along, along, along comes this poor widow. Interesting contrast here, right? Because he, he had just been criticizing the scribes for the way that they treated widows. And along comes this poor widow, and she puts in, it says, two small copper coins. These are the smallest of all coins. It was called a lepton, so two of them, right? Two lepta, that's what she put in. Now, for perspective, if you have an ESV translation of the Bible, you might see that there's a footnote at the bottom that says a lepton was a Jewish coin worth about 128th of a denarius. One 128th of a denarius, which is helpful only if you know what a denarius is. And, of course, the footnote tells us that too. It says a denarius is about a day's wage for a laborer. Okay, so we're getting somewhere right? One lepton was one 128th of a day's wage for a common laborer. So to put it into our terms, right, let's do a little math here. You might have said, well, I was not expecting math to be a part of the sermon today. Let's do a little bit of math, right? Get out your calculators, right? First, some assumptions. The minimum wage in New Jersey, 2023, is currently, I believe, $14.13 an hour. It's going up to $15 next year. Right? Now, I don't care about your political views, your economic views on the subject, about whether it's helpful to have a minimum wage at all or what you think the level of that minimum wage should be. I don't care. The math works. Just follow me. Okay? If you make $15 an hour and you work a standard eight-hour day, that gives you what? Calculators? $120 for the day. So there, it's kind of your denarius. $120. And so the lepton is 1 128th of that day's wage. Okay, so plug that in. 120 divided by 128 gives you what? Calculators? 94 cents. Right? So she put in two. Two lepton. What do you got? A dollar 88. A buck 88. And so Jesus sees this woman put in her buck 88 and says that this woman has given more than all the rich had given in all of their big gifts. Now, what's he talking about? Clearly, it doesn't mean that the rich shouldn't have been giving, and it doesn't mean that their gifts weren't needed, right? Jesus' ministry, the ministry of the early church in the book of Acts, the ministry of the church today, right, is clearly dependent upon the giving of God's people, and, and, and they couldn't have done it on $1.88. But it does mean that there is something different with the heart and the motivation of this woman, right? What makes a gift commendable? 
And you commend someone from the gift. Well, it's, it, 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 when it's selfless, when it doesn't look to itself, when it's sincere, when it's not given under compulsion, and when it's sacrificial. And this is Jesus' larger point. And this is the point that connects us to and leads and costs them, he says, relatively speaking, very little. They still eat well, sleep on designer sheets in a big house with a manicured lawn. Right? But for the widow, this $1.88 was a huge gift. Now, it's common when this story is taught to make the concluding observation and application sound something like this. Right? The, the, in Sunday school lessons or in a lot of sermons, you would, you would kind of say, okay, the point that Jesus is making is that Jesus doesn't care how much you give. He just cares what's in your heart. And that's true in a certain sense, but be careful on two fronts when you say that. First, remember that it's not actually an easier standard to say that Jesus doesn't care about the dollar amount, he just cares about what's in your heart. Because there are lots of people, especially lots of rich people, who would be more tempted to say, look, just give me an amount that won't make me feel guilty. Tell me how much I ought to give, but leave my heart alone. Now, secondly, though, and get this, if you say that Jesus doesn't care about how much you give, you're not really seeing what, you, what, what, what he's saying here. Because Jesus actually cares very much about how much this woman gives. You say, but it's just $1.88. Clearly, Jesus has to be caring about more than the amount. Well, yes, $1.88 is the amount. And that's the financial value. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus does care how much she gives, because he comments on how much she gives, and how much did the woman give? Everything. You see? They all contributed out of their abundance, it says, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, I want to try really hard to avoid all the potential distractions, all the caveats that come immediately into all of our minds, right, that we don't have time to deal with. Because you ask, wait, does this mean we should just give everything, literally everything away right now and have nothing to live on at all? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Are you saying that it's a sin for a person to have enough money to have nice sheets and a nice lawn? No. But no one can walk away from a text like this and not feel its weight. William Barclay, the renowned Scottish theologian of the 20th century, he said, it is an insensate, insensate man who can read the story of the widow and her two lepta without searching and without humiliating self-examination. Insensate. It means just what it sounds like. You can't, no senses. You don't feel anything. He's saying you have to be unconscious for a story not to affect you like this. Now, so there's lots of caveats. Lots of caveats you can make about particular applications, but you cannot rationalize away the very clear fact that Jesus is commending this woman for how much she gave, for the immensity of her sacrifice, because she gave everything. And Jesus is probably feeling a particular connection to that. Because remember, he's just days away from his own death. And it should make us stop and consider as we approach the Lord's table this morning when Jesus, out of his abundant, infinite riches and wealth, remember, he's the Lord of King David. Right? He's the God who became man. Right? When, when he thought about what he would be willing to give to us, right? if there was ever a possibility of someone who had so much that if he just gave us a little tiny bit of what he had, he just gave us a little bit, it would still be a ton. And yet when he came to this earth, he did more than just give a little. 
He did more than just give a lot. When Jesus died on the cross, when He gave His body, when He spilled His blood, how much did He give for you? Everything. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table this morning, press upon our hearts that You are the one deserving of true honor. Press upon our hearts the cost that You have paid so that we are able to recognize You as the one deserving that honor and be able to be in Your presence and praise You for it for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be changed and that we would seek to honor You with everything that You have given. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.